0: It's time now for Pilgrim's Progress Storytime with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress Storytime. I'm Pastor Ray from the National Prayer Chapel. John Bunyan was put in jail in 1661 in Bedford, England. He was there for the next 12 years. He was offered out of prison after six years on the condition that he would no longer continue preaching. In fact, they let him out of jail and he went home. But he said, no, he would not stop preaching. So they put him back in the rude and ugly jail in Bedford, England, where it was freezing cold in the winter and baking hot in the summer he was in jail because he spoke of jesus christ you had to have a license in that day to preach the gospel he said no i don't need a license i just need the holy spirit and so he preached and it was while in prison that he began writing the manuscript for Pilgrim's Progress. I'm reading that to you. Today we're going to begin with chapter 7, On Trial for the Gospel. When Christian and Faithful had almost passed through the wilderness, Faithful looked back and he saw someone coming after them whom he thought he recognized. Oh, said Faithful, to his spiritual brother, who is that coming toward us? Christian looked and said, It's our good friend, Evangelist. Yes, said Faithful, for it was he who sent me on the way to the gate. So Evangelist came up to them and greeted them. Peace be with you, my dear friends and peace be with all of those who've helped you along the way. Welcome, evangelist, Christian said joyfully. Seeing you again brings to mind all your past kindness and your faithful labor done for our eternal good. And a thousand times welcome, said faithful. You have no idea how sweet and desirable is your company to poor pilgrims like us. Then evangelist said, How has it gone with you, my friends, since the last time we parted? What have you met with, and and how have you conducted yourselves? Then Christian and faithful told him all the things that had happened to them. I'm glad. I'm glad you've been faithful, said evangelist. Not that you've met with trials, but that you have been victorious and that you've been faithful despite your many weaknesses and troubles along the way. I'm glad for your sakes and for mine. I have sowed and you have reaped. The day is coming when both he who sowed and those who reaped shall rejoice together. That is, of course, if you endure to the end. For in due season we shall reap if we do not give up. The crown is before you, and it is an incorruptible one. So run that you may obtain it. Some who set out for this crown, even after they have gone quite a long way, allow others to come along and snatch the victory from them. So hold fast to what you have, and and let no man take away your crown. You are not yet out of the reach of the gunshot of the devil. You have not yet resisted unto death in your strivings against sin. Let the kingdom be always before you, and believe with certainty and consistency the things that are yet unseen. Let nothing that is on this side of eternal life get inside of you. Above all, take care of your own hearts and resist the lust that tempt you. For your hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Set your face like flint. You have all the power of heaven and earth on your side. Christian thanked Evangelist for his exhortation. And then Christian and faithful asked him to speak of more, knowing that he was a prophet. They hoped to hear from evangelists things that would help them resist and overcome the trials they were likely to encounter as they continued on their journey. Evangelist considered their request and began to speak to them My sons, you have heard of the words of the gospel that you must go through many tribulations before you enter the kingdom of heaven, and also that in every city you enter bonds and affliction await you. Therefore, you cannot expect to travel too long on your pilgrimage without suffering tribulation. You have discovered the truth of these testimonies, in the struggles you have already endured, and more will come immediately after you. You are almost out of this wilderness, and will very soon see the town you will enter next on your journey. In that town, you will be set upon by enemies who will be determined to kill you and who will succeed. You can be sure that one or both of you must seal his testimony with blood. So be faithful unto death, and the king will give you a crown of life. The one who dies there, although his death will be unnatural and perhaps very painful, will be better off than his companion, not only because he will arrive at the celestial city sooner, but also because he will escape many of the miseries that the other will meet on the road, on his journey. So then, you will come to the town, and this happens to you, fulfilling what I have related. Then remember me and the things that I have told you. Conduct yourselves like men and commit the keeping of your souls to your God as you struggle to do what is right. Remember that He is your faithful Creator. Then I saw in my dream that when they had left the borders of the wilderness, they immediately saw a town before them. The name of the town is Vanity, and in the town there was a year-round market called Vanity Fair. It bears its name because the town that hosts the fair is only concerned with things that are unimportant and vain. All that is bought and sold at the fair is likewise vain and worthless. As the ancient saying goes, all that cometh is vanity. This fair is no new business, but has been established from ancient times. I will now explain to you its history and its origins. Almost 5,000 years ago, there was a pilgrim walking to the celestial city, just as Christian and faithful were doing, Belzebub, Apollyon, and Legion. And with their companions, seeing that the pilgrim's path went right through the town of Vanity, conspired together to set up a fair in which all sorts of vain merchandise would be sold all year long. This merchandise consisted of houses and lands, trades, places, honors, positions, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, delights of all sorts, such as whores, and lewd entertainment, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. Moreover, at this fair, you can always see juggling and cheats, games, fools apes, knaves, rogues, and that of every kind. Also to be seen and at no charge are thefts, murders, adulteries, false witnesses, who cause death with their lies. As in other fairs of much less importance, where there are several rows and streets, all properly named for the different wares that are vended, So, also, Vanity Fair has the proper places, rows and streets, countries and kingdoms, where the wares of this fair can be found. Here is the Britain row, the French row, the Italian row, the Spanish row, the German row. And I would add, there would also be the American row. Also, as in other fairs, where one particularly goes to look, there is the commodity in great demand. It is the wares of Rome. They're greatly promoted and desired. And only a few nations, including England, have ever taken a dislike to the gods of Rome. Now, as I said, the way to the celestial city lies just through this town where this lusty fair is kept. Anyone going to the celestial city who will not go through this town must go out of the world. The prince of princes himself, when he was here, went through this town to his own country. I think it was Belzebub, the chief lord of this fair, Who invited him to buy some of his vanities? He even offered to make him the Lord of the Fair, if only he would show him reverence as he went through the town. Because the prince was such a person of honor, Beelzebub took him from street to street and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a little time in order if possible, allure the blessed one to cheapen himself and buy some of the vanities. But the prince had no interest in the merchandise, and left the town without spending so much as one penny on anything there. This fair is a great and ancient one, one of long-standing. Now, these pilgrims, as I said, must pass through the Vanity Fair, and so they did. But as they entered into the fair, they created a great commotion. All the people in the fair turned their attention to the two pilgrims. Now, there were several reasons for this. First, the pilgrims were dressed differently from the people trading at the fair. The people of the fair looked at them in astonishment. Some said they were fools. Some said they were just lunatics. Some said they were just outlandish men. Secondly, as strange as the pilgrims' attire appeared to, their, to the onlookers, their speech was judged even stranger. Very few could even understand what the pilgrims said since they spoke the language of the promised kingdom rather than the language of the world which was the common language of the fair. So from one end to the other end of the fair, they seemed like barbarians to others. Thirdly, the thing that most annoyed and puzzled the merchants was that these pilgrims put no value on the fair's goods. They did not even enjoy looking at them. And when the merchants called out to them to buy this or that, the pilgrims put their fingers in their ears and cried out, Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity, and look upward, signifying that their trade and traffic was only from heaven. One merchant, observing the strange conduct of the pilgrims, mockingly said to them, What will you buy? But they looked sternly at him and answered, we buy the truth. This caused great offense, and the merchants began to despise the pilgrims even more. Some mocked, some taunted, some spoke reproachfully, and some began to call out for others to strike them. Finally, the pilgrims created so much commotion that the natural order of the fair was disrupted. The confusion was so great that the word was sent to the great one of the fair who quickly came down and dispatched a few of his most trusted friends to detain and question the two pilgrims. So they were held and questioned. The men who examined them asked them where they were from, where they were going, and why were they dressed in such unusual clothing. Christian and faithful told them that they were pilgrims, strangers in the world, and that they were going to their own country, which was the heavenly Jerusalem. They also told them that they had done nothing to the men of the merchants of the town, that they should cause them to be mistreated and detained from making progress on their journey. The only thing they did cause an offense with was to tell those who were trying to sell them their wares that they would only buy the truth. The men who were appointed to examine Christian and faithful concluded that they were either mad and vagabonds, or they were troublemakers who had come to create confusion in the fair. So they took them and they beat them. They smeared them with dirt, with mud, and then they put them in a cage. Be a spectacle to all of the men of the fair. And there they stayed for some time, the objects of ridicule and malice, of revenge, for any passerby who wished to abuse them, which caused the great one of the fair to laugh viciously at their plight. But the pilgrims remained calm and patient, and would, when men would come to yell and scream every sort of vile abuse at them they responded with kind words. When men came and cursed them, they in turn blessed them, returning good works for bad and kindness for injuries. Some men, who were more thoughtful and less prejudiced than the rest, began to criticize and rebuke the more brutish men of the crowd for their continual abuse of the two pilgrims. This caused a heated reaction to the pilgrims. They were called traitors who would side with the pilgrims, confederates of these two caged men. Some in the mob said that they were defending the pilgrims and should thus suffer the same treatment. The more reasonable men replied that as far as they could see, the pilgrims were quiet and sober and intended nobody any harm. They also noted that many who traded in the wares of the fair, were more worthy to be put in the cage than these two were. So after many words, angry words, had passed on both sides, they began to fight among themselves, causing many injuries. While all of this was happening, the two pilgrims conducted themselves with dignity and wisdom. After this incident, The two poor pilgrims were brought before their examiners again and were charged with inciting a riot in the fair. So the authorities beat them again without mercy, shackled them with irons, and led them in chains up and down the fair. This was done to frighten anyone who was thinking about speaking up on their behalf or joining their cause. Throughout the whole spectacle, Christian and faithful behaved themselves wisely and received the shame that was cast upon them with so much meekness and patience that it won to their side a few, even in the fair. This put the other party into an even greater rage, so much so that they decided that the cage and the irons were not punishment enough. The two pilgrims should be put to death, for all the abuse they had caused and for deluding the men of the fair. So Christian and faithful were returned to the cages again with their feet in stalks until further plans for their execution could be made. While enduring all of this persecution, Christian and faithful remembered what their faithful friend evangelist had told them about the suffering that was about to happen to them. This strengthened their resolve to bear all of the abuse and await patiently the outcome of their situation. They also reminded one another for their mutual comfort that whichever one of them suffered death would have the best outcome. Therefore, each secretly hoped that he might be the one chosen for this fate. Nevertheless, each committed himself to the wise plans of him who rules all things. And so they were content to remain in their current condition until it should please God to use them otherwise. Then at the appointed time they were led to their trial, which was planned with only one purpose in mind, the condemnation of them both. First, they were brought before their enemies and formally charged. The judge's name was Lord Hate God. Their indictments were the same in substance, though somewhat varying in form. The contents were as follows, that they were enemies to and disturbers of trade, that they had made commotion and divisions in the town and had won a faction over to their own most dangerous opinions. In contempt of the law of the prince. Faithful was the first to be put on trial. He began his defense by saying that he had only set himself against the enemy of him who is higher than the highest. And he said, As for the disturbance, I made none, for I am a man of peace. The individuals who were won over to our side were won by seeing the truth and our innocence, and they are better off for it. And as to the king that you talk of, since he is Beelzebub, the enemy of our Lord, I defy him and all of his angels. Then proclamation was made that those who wished to bring accusations against the prisoners should be brought forth to present their evidence on behalf of their king. Three witnesses were called. Envy superstition, and flattery. They were then asked if they knew the prisoners and what they had to say against them on behalf of the Lord, their king. When Envy stood up and said, My Lord, I have known this man a long time, and he will attest upon my oath before the honorable bench that he is hold hold." the judge interrupted, give him his oath. So they swore him in. Then Envy continued, My lord, this man, notwithstanding his innocent name, is one of the vilest men in our country. He does not regard prince or people, law or custom, but does all that he can to install in others his disloyal na- notions, which he generally calls principles of faith and holiness. In particular, I heard him with my own ears affirm that Christianity and the customs of our town of vanity were diametrically opposed and cannot be reconciled. By saying that, my Lord, he condemns all the laudable things we do and us in the same breath. Then the judge said to Envy, do you have any more to say? Envy loudly asserted, My lord, I could say much more if it would not be so tedious to the court. Yet, if need be, when the other gentlemen have presented their evidence, if anything is missing that would guarantee the condemnation of the prisoners, I will enlarge my testimony against them at that time. So he was told to stand down. Then they called superstition and asked him to look upon the prisoner. They also asked what he could say for their lord the king against him. After he took his oath, he began, My lord, I have no real acquaintance with this man, nor do I desire to have any further knowledge of him. However, after having a conversation with him the other day, I can report that he is very, very dangerous. I heard him say that our religion was useless and unable to show man any way to please God. We all know that this is the same as saying that we worship in vain, have no forgiveness of our sins, and face damnation. This is what I have to say to the court. Then flattery was sworn in, and he was asked to say what he knew against the prisoner on behalf of the Lord King. My Lord, and all the rest of you gentlemen, I have known of this fellow for a long time. I've heard him say things that should not be said. He has reviled and scolded in the harshest terms our noble prince, Belzebub. Well, that's as far as we can go today. But next Saturday, we're going to go further. We're going to give testimony. We're going to hear the outcome. And it's not good. They are going to execute, murder, kill this man faithful. It's a sad story. But it's delightfully happy. Because they're going to heaven. God bless you. I'll talk to you next week. I want sw-